A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 132 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. And with me, like the Order of the Sith avoiding elimination, the EU guru himself, the Count of Two Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Uh, good to be here. Not sure I'm going to be happy once we start talking about our topic, but good to be here for the moment. Yeah, I'm definitely bipolar on this topic. I mean, there are aspects of it that I really enjoy, and then aspects that I'm like, really? Like, wow. You know, I thought the Clone Wars was going to leave some continuity bombs in its wake, but apparently not alone. <laughs> yeah, it's the old, uh, well, it's it's Dark Horse, basically, as they're, as they're ending their time as the Star Wars publisher, deciding to, to go back to that tried-and-true um, other order that was issued by Palpatine that we don't actually get to see in the film. That being, uh, you know, execute order, f*** it all. And yes, I know you're going to have to bleep that out now. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we explore Star Wars Volume 2, From the Ruins of Alderaan by Brian Wood. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Ah, uh, from the ruins of Alderaan. Alderaan being synonymous with, you know, continuity. Um, <laughs> You can almost say that Brian Wood is a Star Wars writer ahead of his time. Uh, just months prior to Disney coming in and basically saying, hey, we're going to shuffle everything over to uh, Marvel, and oh, by the way, all that previous continuity is going to be Legends now, and we're starting up a new canon, basically tossing out what had come before and trying to do what amounts to a reboot. Here's Brian Wood once again showing that that seems to be the mindset behind Star Wars Volume 2, to do a reboot that winds up not being a reboot, which winds up having all kinds of continuity issues. Um, I don't know that a soft opening? <laughs> I don't know that we've ever been told that this was actually for sure meant to have been the beginning of a reboot, um, but it certainly, again, still feels like it. And it treads a lot of the same ground that we get in other stories. It's a lot like... Uh, Brian Wood Star Wars is a lot like back in the day where it seemed like everybody wanted to tell the story of how does Vader find out Luke's name? Or everybody wanted to tell the story what happens when Luke returns to Tatooine for the first time, and so on. Or everybody wants to tell the story of the background of the Death Star or how they get the Death Star plans. There's all these different little things that 
are natural outgrowths of the films that people sit back and say, golly, I wonder how that happened. And you have these writers come in and say, well, I'm going to do something special. I'm going to tell an untold story from the films, not realizing that others have done it before, so it's no longer an untold story. So we have another arc here that we kind of have to look at two different ways. One, by itself, thinking of this sort of as, as a reboot or out of continuity, is it a decent story as we go along? And then fitting it into the continuity, it supposedly fits into the Legends continuity, which it in many ways doesn't. How does it then uh, impact things around and how is it as a Legends story? Um, it's an odd group of issues. It's issues 7 through 12 of Star Wars Volume 2. It is a split creative team. Brian Wood is still writing, but we have two different artists. Carlos de Anda does wind up doing that gorgeous, uh, almost anime-style art for the last three issues, but for the first three, I guess to give de Anda a chance to get going on some of the other ones, we have guest penciler Ryan Kelly. Ryan Kelly, who seems to be obsessed with two things. One, chins. Uh, chins and people look like they've been beat up. Basically, all the characters pretty much look like they could be related to Sylvester Stallone um, in terms of their facial structure. And two, the idea that any female character who is going through some type of mental consternation will express that by taking their overshirt or, or jacket, unzipping it down close to their waist so you see the shirt underneath it, but pause in the middle of doing so in thought. Those seem to be his fixations when it comes to artwork, because those are the repeated themes that we get from Ryan Kelly here. Um, when it comes to the artwork, at least with this series, the one thing it had going for it was Carlos de Anda, and for the first three issues of these six, it doesn't. So it doesn't wind up particularly well. Um, overall, it's an okay story, I guess. It winds up giving us at least a little bit of background on Bircher, who finally, by the end of this art, gets a first name. It is Kel, Kel Bircher, like Kel Tainer. Um, but it, it's basically, it's an odd story. It's giving us uh, yet another attempt of Leia to get used to the idea of what happened to Alderaan, yet another individual behind part of the creation of the Death Star, yet another first time that Luke goes back to Tatooine after the Battle of Yavin, yet another origin for Rogue Squadron, and yet another story where what's happening time-wise doesn't all seem to mesh because we have the ongoing stories of Leia and what she's doing, Luke and Wedge and what they're doing, Vader and Briacea and what they're doing, and Han and Perla and Chewbacca and what they're doing. And while they're told intercutting with each other, the timing doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, Luke and Wedge might make it all the way to, from one fleet to another in another star system, in the time that it takes Han and Perla and Chewie, for instance, to fire a few blaster shots. Um, it, it's an oddly told tale as far as the intercutting goes for this thing. Um, and it's another one that has its own internal inconsistencies. Apparently the writer cannot figure out whether the Venator Star Destroyer we see in this story is the Audacity or the Resolute, because he flip-flops between the names of the ship depending on which issue it is that you're reading. Um, it's, again, it's an awkward tale taken outside the context of other continuity in the Legends saga. It's okay, I guess. It's decent enough. Um, taken within the Legends continuity, it's another one of these ones that feels like it should have been able to stand on its own even if it wasn't great. 
but instead has all these different things that cause it to rub the wrong way against other continuity that makes you sit back and grumble as you're reading. Um, so kind of par for the course for Star Wars Volume 2 here. Read at your own risk if you're a fan of continuity. Yeah, well said. I, I'm going to try not to tread on a lot of what you said because it, it resonates with my heart. Um, you know, I, if I look at it by itself, it is a decent run-of-the-mill story. Uh, I would say it it encompasses and embodies the EU in the aspect of it's got some good aspects and it's got some really terrible ones. Um, you know, so in that regard, it, it falls into what I kind of expected. Uh, but what, but you know, you nailed something right on the get out the get go. You know, I mean, this did feel like a, a soft opening for the reboot. I mean, if this would have been part of the rebooted canon, I think I might have been able to accept it better. Uh, right now, it feels like the Clone Wars. It feels like it just doesn't quite line up with what we get in Legends, and so it feels like it's like a a, a world apart. Uh, but yeah, if if I look at it just by itself, it's not a terrible story. It's just a different interpretation of things than what I'm accustomed to. You know, we get things like, uh, you know, Vader's flat out using the force to carry on full on conversations from God knows how far across the galaxy with people. Uh, you know, Luke, when he does get talked to by Ben, people, other people around him that have force sensitivity are hearing it, which, which made me stop and think, okay, obviously when Luke goes, Leia, Leia at the bottom of Cloud City, obviously someone interpreted that Leia actually heard him go, Leia, Leia, and just didn't feel this like pulling sensation, which was what I always assumed. I mean, it, it left me feeling like, you know, Star Wars is definitely open to interpretation and sometimes what we interpret isn't what others interpret and what we see as as right on the film isn't what always other people see and that's one of those that really stood out to me it was like you know he's not necessarily wrong but it was definitely a twist on that use of the force that has never been used across the board with legends very very rarely have they had them use words you know more it was general sensations and things like that feelings and concepts being portrayed across uh i believe dawn of the jedi they started messing with that a little bit though where they were actually talking to each other and doing some some uh, telepathy and stuff like that but that was a lost ability so so you know i was stopping and kind of you know scratching my head with that the whole name change though with the two ships really threw me off i was kind of like what the hell's going on uh and there was a, there was kind of like it seemed like the main overall plot of, you know, we got a spy, so we got to keep things to ourselves was used by the writers to drop plot points in out of nowhere. It was like, like, especially the ending of it. It's like, oh, I got contacted by so-and-so and I'm going to have a wedding. Like, wait, what? Oh, well, we've been being tapped by these, these Imperial spies all this time. So I just kept that to myself. And there was a lot of just too good to be true moments, which I guess, you know, they're, they're, they kind of also go hand in hand with Star Wars. But the way they go about it, it's like, okay, so Prithi decides to, you know, abandon all protocol and basically, you know, drag the Empire right back to the Rebellion's doorstep. But hey, that's all part of the plan. Wait, what? There was a lot of moments where I was wait wetting and, and I think for me that was my issue. I know the Brian Woods Star Wars Volume 2 gets a lot of knocks, uh, you know, and I hate to say it, but... It's deserved. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not a new continuity. It's not a reboot yet. And yet he treated it like that. In a lot of ways, it felt very disrespectful to what came before. Uh, for me, you know, that that's just the way I look at it. Still a good story for the most part. But, you know, for me as the overall Legends guy, you know, the EU man, I, I have a hard time with it because it just so blatantly does not care. 
you know, the Rogue Squadron stuff really didn't sit well with me in the last arc, and even more so now they're like, well, we're just going to close down Stealth Squadron and reform a whole new one with Rogue Squadron, and the Rogues are all going to be led by Wedge, and Wedge is going to decide his new XO based off of who can fly, and Luke really has nothing to do with Rogue Squadron whatsoever. And, you know, I felt like, you know, Rogue Squadron was such a great video game series, great franchise, great comics and stuff, and I felt like this route was just very disrespectful to everything that came before it. I don't think that was the intended, you know, direction that, that Woods was going. Like, hey, let's see how, how how we could tell a new story and be as disrespectful to everything that came before without being that way. <laughs> yeah, tongue in cheek. I don't think it was that case at all, but I definitely left me scratching my head a lot. And, and I don't know, it, it was like X-Men Days of Future Past. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't all I was hoping it would be. Wait, wait, wait. How is this character alive after dying back in Last Stand? What? Yeah, that's basically <laughs> the kind of thing that we're running into here. Alright, so I guess it's spoiler territory time. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go, on another adventure beyond the films. Alright, so we pick up with issue number seven, which at the time we thought was going to be called Prisoners of the Empire. That was what was suggested as the title of this arc. Instead, what we have is an arc that is now known as From the Ruins of Alderaan, because that's what they're going to call it in trade paperback form. I guess they have called it in trade paperback form. This is a series that they collect relatively quickly after the issues are released. Bear in mind, though, that this arc, if you're trying to collect these in trade paperback form, this arc is a trade paperback by itself, as was in the Shadow of Yavin, the first arc. But going forward, what you'll find is that the next two trade paperbacks are out of order. They're going to take the next two issues after this, Five Days of Sith, and put those in a trade paperback with the last two issues of the series, and then the four in between those two which is apparently being now called Rebel Girl, which really doesn't sound Star Wars. It really sounds like it should be, you know, a cartoon show for kids on a, a Disney XD or something. Um, well, I think fangirls are probably going to enjoy that. I mean, that's one that they can probably embrace. But fans like you and I, not so much. You know, just To me, it sounds diminutive. You know, I mean, I understand the concept of fangirl is like a parallel to fanboy. But you probably wouldn't have seen a story with Luke called Rebel Boy, right? <laughs> because it would have it would have been seen to be somewhat uh, uh, diminishing him to say boy instead of saying man or guy. I'm not sure that Rebel Girl gives the level of status that, um, in the title at least, that Leia deserves. But in any event, those four issues, Rebel Girl, are being collected on their own. So you're going to find that it's issues, I guess, uh, 13, 14, and then... 1920, they get lumped together, and then uh, 15, 16, 17, and 18 get lumped together for their own. So the trade paperbacks will not have the stories in order. Not that it matters all that much with this series. So we pick up with issue number seven. Beresia, right, the Kuat Drive Yards lady that we met back in the previous arc, where uh, she was the one saying that she could run the construction of the Death Star better and all that, and, and Vader took her sort of under his wing as a special agent type person and promoted her to moth and everything. Um, she is meeting with Palpatine aboard the Executor, which, yes, is officially named here. It's not some other ship. Yes, the Executor somehow is active and fully formed 
well before it should have been, right before the evacuation of Yavin, but of course it looks like the Rebel fleet has evacuated Yavin four months before they should have also. Um, basically, Palpatine's putting her down. You know, you know, you should not be here. Your title is not one that I would have granted you. Basically, just kind of smacking her around because Vader didn't consult him before putting her into this position. So she wanders her way back to her quarters, does the whole, Oh, I'm so distraught. I must open up my shirt down to my waist, but leave my undershirt being what's showing. Oh, I'm distraught. That apparently Ryan Kelly likes to do for the female characters. Um, she then grabs her own blaster and points it at her chest, ready to kill herself, apparently because the Emperor disapproves, or she's afraid of what the Emperor might do to her out of his disapproval. But she's contacted by Vader. Now, here's the thing. I'm not sure this is meant to be the Force, because of the way they use the bubbles. The bubbles have the little, like, spikes on the corners, like three spikes on each corner. So it sounds like this... I never really took it as the Force, uh, in this case, I took it as, oh, he's contacting her via, like, a secret comm or something that's linked into her room. But either way, Vader tells her to put the weapon down, that uh, he has a need for her, you know, pay no attention to the Emperor, you're still of use to me, I will protect you, and she thanks him. So, Beresia is, I mean, she really basically is going to wind up being mostly written out in this arc. We don't even see her again except to find out in a later arc that, oh, well, yeah, she was found dead. That's it. I mean, just there is no resolution for the character. It's like they built her up in the first arc just to play the role here of being able to be Vader's eyes and ears when Luke happens to wind up where he and Wedge wind up soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt she was a pointless character for the most part. She just seemed to be there for the other characters. Uh, though I, I did like... You know, it gave Palpatine that moment to get that anti-woman sediment out right out the gate, you know, because he's always in Legends been this dirtbag, you know, kind of treat him to wine, dine and whatever he's going to do. And then, you know, tell him that they're worthless because he's just a total piece of Sith. But I like the way he goes, you aspire above your station. I tell you what your station isn't. It is not Moffa, the greatest undertaking of the Galactic Empire. And, yeah, I mean, I get that that's where the stress is coming from for her. She's like, oh, you know, oh, poodoo, I'm in it bad. But, you know, you, you make sense with the the way the bubbles point out. Yeah, that probably isn't the force, which, which definitely leaves that part of my pondering. But it gets me back to that point of, like, it would have been nice if they just said, you know, via secret comm link or, you know, Vader's got eyes and ears everywhere and has her under surveillance. I mean, there's nothing to say how Vader knows she's got the blaster to her chest and is about to shoot her. So I think that's probably why I, I aspired it to being the force. Uh, and the fact that his voice is coming out of nowhere. But it's like, it, there's nothing there to kind of point you in the direction of things. And I think overall with Wood's story, this is my overall problem with it. Is there's a lot of stuff just thrown out there and you're just supposed to try to figure out what's going on. And then later they'll give you a quick little one-liner from one character. And it's like, but that makes zero sense. And I, I constantly, I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth between that. You know, thinking that Palpatine is a little more creative than we're giving him credit for, maybe he was making a pun. Maybe this is supposed to start one of those Laurel and Hardy type moments, like a who's on first type moment. You aspire above your station. I tell you what your station isn't. It's not Moff of the greatest undertaking of the Galactic Empire. Wait, I'm Moff over the Death Star. I thought that was the greatest undertaking of the Empire. No, you aspire above your station. 
that station? No, not that space station, your station, kind of thing. And you could have had like a whole little, you know, a little slapsticky type moment where they finally just start beating each other with pots and pans or something. Um, we then move to Tatooine for yet another homecoming of Luke after the Battle of Yavin. How many times can he do this in the EU? As many times as they will freaking allow it to happen. Hopefully, <laughs> we will only see one homecoming in the new story canon continuity. But Amen. Now, I got a question for you before you get into this, though. Is this the first time we've seen Owen and Baru buried, though? I think we... I don't know that we've seen them... Like, the process of them being buried. Uh, something... It, what nags at me is the idea of, I want to say it was the first or second issue back in the, I guess it was the first, in the Star Wars 3D series by Blackthorn. Uh, it's the one that tells the story, basically, of how they wind up on Tatooine, and Luke's trying to tie up his loose ends, and that's when he gives the moisture farm, the large moisture farm, to that alien dude, who then gets referenced as giving it to, uh, or selling it to Darklighter in the X-Wing books okay but i i want to say that there if it's not something where we're seeing them buried i want to say it's like we see markers or something set up for them it's it's been a long time since i've read those stories i haven't read them since i had to use them for the uh from the star wars library stuff but uh anyway they're there uh luke's talk was you know i thought i'd feel something coming back here but i don't etc etc maybe because you've been here repeatedly before um, they find a little picture, and it's Baru from when she was about the same age that Luke and Leia are now. Uh, you get the kind of irony there of Luke and Leia, you know, the Skywalker children, not knowing they are the Skywalker children, walking in the path of uh, Anakin Skywalker, there being at the Lars homestead, of course. Um, they, if not bury Owen and Baru, it certainly looks kind of like it. Um, he sets up at least a little marker, a nice little stack of of rocks basically a little pyramid looking thing of rocks kind of like what we uh, uh, would expect of just sort of a, a regular desert quick burial here and then leia fills luke in on the plan and it's kind of weird because how has you sitting back going okay why did they have to come all the way to tatooine for her to brief luke on the plan um really they can't have a private conversation aboard the ship at all uh this was what they needed to talk about. So they, for whatever reason, they're away from the Rebel fleet, all the way back on Tatooine, going into the old Lars homestead, and she lays out basically, you know, here's why I formed the squadron, you know, about the whole issue of there's there may be a mole within the Rebels, um, that somehow Bircher is one step ahead of them constantly. Um, they need to figure out where the leaks are coming from. Uh, they need to figure out how this is happening, and so on and so on. And... Luke comes up with this kind of boneheaded plan. He wants, uh, uh, he winds up being him and Wedge. He and Wedge are going to manage to get themselves captured and brought aboard a Star Destroyer. Brought aboard the Devastator. At least that's the plan. He says he's going to be brought aboard uh, that Star Destroyer talking about Birchers. Although, you know, it's kind of one of those, uh, uh, it, that means that Vader's going to have to shift Beresia around yet again in order to get her into a position to be the one that figures out that Luke is there. Um, but yeah, yeah, let us get caught, and while we're aboard, we'll break away from the Imperials, and we're slice into their computer and find out where that mole is, because somehow Wedge and Luke just became expert computer hackers out of nowhere. Um, and Leia... You know, it's that, wait, 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 Luke, they'll execute you. You're the pilot that killed the Death Star. 
Leia, no one knows that. No one knows who I am. I'm completely anonymous to the Empire. Which again falls into the, how much do they actually know about Luke at this point? Because within the continuity, they already know him. They already know his name. Uh, Vader has found out about it in Vader's Quest and in one of the issues of the Marvel series, in one case learning the last name, in the other case learning his full name. And Vader's been talking in the previous arc about Skywalker. So he knows it's a Skywalker that did this at that point. Uh, and they even said, Leon, she said, you know, this, this is basically tying into what we got with Vader's Quest. It does not clash. Don't worry about it. Um, so here, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, don't worry. They don't know me. Granted, they know me and they know me by name. And Vader is hunting me down by name. But don't worry, they don't know me. What? Oh, Luke, you ignorant fool. <laughs> I think for me, the, the hardest part I have with this scene is that Luke and Leia are, are just constantly morphing. I mean, the, the looks of the characters, well, not terrible for Leia, per se. Luke just, like you said, the Stallone thing, like, really gets me. Yeah, you, you nailed that one. Like, he's got that old... Masters of the Universe He-Man kind of look to him. You're just like, what is going on with you, Luke? And he's constantly morphing. Uh, I, yeah, I think Luke, though, this just shows the ignorant farm boy side of him kind of full force, which I think that's another thing that conflicts with me off and on. It's like one minute he's a bumbling farm boy who's totally ignorant of everything, and then all of a sudden he's got skills, baby. Look at him. He's whipping that lightsaber around like he knows what he's doing. Hey, but Wedge, stand back. I'm about to ignite it. I did think that was kind of a nice little touch, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, this whole scene just, it's, it's weird because they do the burying, you know, and then he goes, no, I'm right. And it's okay. This will make me stronger. Let's go to work. And it's like, okay, so now that now they've buried them and they're going to go to work and by work, it's Leia filling him in on everything and him pitching his plan, which to me is, is a, a ridiculous idea. And the fact that the Alliance are, are going to even let Luke do it. You know, the only Jedi that you possibly could have on your side. Yeah, go ahead, you know, just walk right. In. It's a trap. <laughs> Come on. I'm wondering if maybe there's like a force game of telephone going on. Like Luke needs to slice the computer, but he doesn't know how. So he can listen to Obi-Wan. But Obi-Wan was never an expert computer ha hacker. So Obi-Wan is listening in the force to somebody else's voice who happens to be a hacker. It's like, hang on, Luke, I'll get you the instructions. Okay, what does he do next? Kind of stuff. Um... As for the, the character morphing, yeah, that was the scene that really it, it really hit a lot of people hard, given the fact that Carlos DeAnda did such great artwork for this series. This was actually pages that went up as a preview, and people were like, what am I looking at? I mean, I know that artists a lot of times use photo references. Uh, uh, for example, you've got Scruffy Rebel, as she calls herself, the cosplayer, wound up being used as a photo reference repeatedly for Jaina Solo. And that's great and all, um, but I'm not sure that when you're doing your photo references to build your characters, you're supposed to make your photo references out of mashed potatoes. <laughs> Alright, so we moved to Coruscant. And last we saw Han and Chewie, they were on the run. They were supposed to be making basically a buy, a purchase for the Rebellion, and instead they got betrayed. And they were on the run and ran into Perla. Perla basically is a garbage hauler. Um, she hauls Big old ships full of garbage down into space. We will find that she manages to uh, get herself a lot of useful parts and such from it to squirrel away for later. Uh, she's sort of playing Han's role in the sense of being the scruffy, mysterious one who's coming in to save the day. In this case, Han being the damsel in distress, I guess. Um, <laughs> but at this point, they've been kind of laying low. 
and now they are taking the huge garbage hauler up into space with the Millennium Falcon stored inside it, Chewie in the Millennium Falcon cockpit, but Han and Perla in the command center or the cockpit, uh, the bridge of that ship that is going into space, the big old boxy garbage hauler. And of course, once they get into space, all hell breaks loose because they weren't as crafty as they thought they were, and here comes the Houndstooth, piloted by Bosk, and Slave One, of course, piloted by Boba Fett, attacking the cargo hauler. And basically, this entire story arc, to me, when it comes to Han and Chewie, there is so little that Perla pays off so far in the series that this kind of feels like, let's just give Han and Chewie something to do so that nobody else is sitting back and wondering, golly, where did those characters go? You know, it's kind of shoehorning them in just to give them something to do, and maybe so that we could see that scene of the refresher back in the previous arc for one of the first times, um, rather than having much of an impact on anything. And it's the one that really wreaks havoc with the whole, wait, this is all supposed to be intercutting and happening simultaneously? Why do minutes pass here or seconds pass here and days may have passed over here? What? Yeah, they could have easily done this in the first arc with with sending Han off on his mission with Chewie and then treating this as his own arc. I mean, this could have easily worked on its own like Rebel Heist. I mean, it, it's a decent enough story plot for them, and it's a boom for the Alliance when it finally comes to conclusion, but it doesn't fit with what's going on in the story. And, and the timing aspect, yeah, it, it, it slows the story down. It slows the progression, and it could have been better served by just holding that off and but doing like a meanwhile back in or, you know, while this was going on and do a throwback with Han and them going back to that first part and kind of jumping from there. I get what they were trying to do, but I, I, I like you, I didn't feel like it really worked. Then our last two scenes basically set up uh, what we have to come in the next few issues. Uh, we have, I love it. We have Wedge and Luke in a ship with Prithy in her X-Wing. Remember, Prithy somehow is back, even though she seemed to be walking away at the end of the last arc. No, 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 no. She didn't actually walk away. She just grabbed her bags and did her little forlorn look at Luke and walked away to different quarters or something. Somehow she's back and still with the Rebels, but uh, so that she can leave again in this arc with a little more explanation, she has her X-Wing basically attached to the bottom of the ship that Wedge and Luke are in. And they're heading straight for the Imperial fleet, uh, Bircher's fleet, so that they can be captured. Um, the idea being that Prithy will detach with the X-Wing and attach to the bottom of the Star Destroyer, uh, waiting for their signal, and uh, they will get their transport captured so that they can get aboard and then somehow do the slicing thing that they're supposed to do. I find it funny... We, we talk about how that Venator Star Destroyer that we're going to see later that uh, Rogarin's using, using um, is called different things in different issues. They screw up the name. Uh, I almost said something else that would have had to be bleeped again. They screw up the name for it. They didn't even try on this one. When we see the Devastator, Colonel Bircher's Imperial Command Ship is what it's labeled. They're like, uh, what was it called again? Screw it. I don't have time to look it up. Colonel Bircher's <laughs> Imperial Command Ship. Um, so they go through the process of getting themselves captured aboard as this is happening. Um, Biracia has been transferred, presumably um, at Vader's orders to keep an eye on Bircher. Um, she's been sent from the executor where she just got tongue-lashed by Palpatine uh, to now working under Bircher aboard the Devastator. 
which puts her in a position to be able to see or notice Luke later on, kind of being a spy amongst Bircher's ranks and such. And then at the same time, or around the same time, back on Home 1, Leia, uh, again, wondering who to trust, deep thoughts, you know, her friends are out there in harm's way, enemies somewhere within the home fleet, her own communications compromised. Leia, a young woman with the weight of the war on her shoulders, feels the walls closing in. Who to trust? She feels so much pressure that she has to have a, a half-unzipped jacket over the undershirt staring off into space, very much like Bria. Again, one of Ryan Kelly's kind of uh, <laughs> beats that he hits within the artwork and such. Um, but she basically just she, she runs into C-3PO and tells him basically to, to delete any record of the conversation because she is taking it upon herself to hop in her X-Wing uh, without any orders and just kind of disappear for a while, zipping out into space to go looking for a home for the Rebels because she can't trust anyone else to do it and cannot trust the chain of command and the uh, communications within the fleet to not give things away to the Imperials. So Leia basically heads out on her own as we end Issue 7. That was a hard one for me to swallow. I mean, Leia's never been that brash to me. I mean, yeah, brave and, and, and you know, brazen, but not rash to the point where she's just going to put herself at that much risk. That just didn't seem, you know, she's always been the smart one. And what she's doing right now is not very smart. And I think that didn't sit well with me. I did th- I did like, though, the uh, whole, you know, wipe this, uh, what'd she say? Uh, wipe this entire conversation from your memory, then go back to sleep. I, I like that that she's able to do that. Kind of gives you an idea of like, hey, I wonder if more people were doing that to 3 people off and on, you know? Uh, everything going on with Bria Shea, moving the plot along. Okay. I get it. I understand it. Uh, but Luke and Wedge... They're going in. It was one of those things like, okay, I don't know. It felt odd because they've been playing these two like, you know, one minute they know what they're doing. The next minute they're still green behind the ears. And it's really hard for me to kind of see with Wedge, especially being one that that goes back and forth. Luke's totally green to me. I just have a hard time seeing anybody letting Luke go on this mission without somebody with experience. And they've flip-flopped with Wedge's character so much that I question, does Luke really think Wedge has that much experience? And does the Alliance actually have that much faith in Wedge? Because obviously they, they did. And then what is Prithi's role in all this? I mean, was she supposed to come back? Was, was she told lead the, the Imperials back? Because that was never really, you know, seemed to be the case. And yet at the end, it was kind of like, oh, she did exactly what we needed her to do. I was like, wait, what? You sent her because you knew she was going to love on Luke and not leave him behind and then lead everyone back. Yeah, there was a lot of that that just didn't quite line up. I constantly found myself, I don't know about you, Nathan, but I constantly found myself, especially with, with the uh, the audacity and the resolute change there too, but little things throughout that haven't lined up with the other arc in this one, I started to question, is Brian Wood actually the only scriptwriter here? Because, you know, I could forgive George Lucas, who's been working on Star Wars for 30 plus years, forgetting what he wrote, you know, years and years ago, but for, for the maker's sake, man, you're writing this in a five-year stretch I'll stretch it out five years even. I mean, come on, dude. Like, you really forgot that much stuff within one arc? Like, that just to me seems almost criminal in the Legends universe. Now, again, getting back to that aspect of, hey, if this was the reboot, I could have forgiven it. I'd have been all for it. Okay, hey, whatever. We're seeing the first of all this stuff. But that wasn't the case here. That, I think, to me was like the biggest disservice of all. Yeah, I mean, he winds up, 
I mean, it, and we same thing with this, the. I just looked at the uh, the first page of the next issue, you know, and they mentioned Stealth Squadron. Is it Stealth Squadron, Shadow Squadron. What is it? Red Squadron, and oh, just constantly like referring to that squadron by different names uh, throughout these. You know, yeah, there is a difference between saying, okay, well, um, he messed up the continuity of certain things, like the executor and all, because well, he hasn't been writing for Star Wars for years. He can't possibly know all that background, and somebody else just didn't catch it. And basically put it on him for writing something contradictory, but also on others for, like, the editors or uh, if anybody brought it to Leland Shee's attention or anything, um, to not correct whatever the issue was. But continuity within your own story that you are writing, that's kind of unforgivable. Um, that's really, really ridiculous. Um, this series, put it this way. I would like in this series, and we said this... Uh, in a previous episode, although I honestly don't remember where we said it, um, I think it was in relation to the idea of drawing into things that are not on screen to explain stuff on screen when it doesn't make sense. Um, I would liken some of the continuity gaps in this series, not just in relation to the other Legends continuity, but to the series itself, to the same kind of boneheadedness that gave us Dooku Captured and the Gungan General back in the Clone Wars. You have an episode that ends with Anakin and Obi-Wan specifically avoiding getting poisoned or getting drugged and knocked out by switching out their drinks only for the next episode to begin with them having been drugged and knocked out somehow. Uh, that wound up taking a webcomic to, to basically try to make sense of that inconsistency between the stories. Sadly, in this case, there is no way to make sense of the inconsistencies. They're simply, mostly inconsistencies. Um, so we pick up Issue 8, Part 2 of From the Ruins of Alderaan. Uh, they do label, they, they remembered the name now, the Star Destroyer Devastator. Uh, we see Prithy underneath. She's still kind of sitting there. Uh, Luke and Wedge are being led off of the ship in binders. Bircher is, is, is looking over what is happening, and we wonder, uh-oh, what's going to happen to them? We jump back to Coruscant, where only apparently a matter of, if anything, minutes, if not seconds, have passed. And the Houndstooth and Slave One are still chasing after uh, the scow that's got uh, Perla and Han and Chewie and the Millennium Falcon on it. Finally, Chewbacca takes the Millennium Falcon up out of uh, the scow, and the fight begins. And then we're throwing it. It's kind of like they use the first few pages of this, since the, the story is intercutting, to do a quick, where are they now, type check-in with all the major players before they really start to do much with the story. Um, Leia is on her way to go find a new home. One page? Okay, moving on to the next. Uh, Vader's contacting Vera. And now the story really kind of gets going because Vera reports that, and boy was it lucky that she was there at exactly the right time. The Force moves in mysterious ways, doesn't it? Um, she manages to report that a couple of rebel, uh, rebel, well, a couple of couriers who were accused of being rebel collaborators, have been captured. One of them with the last name Antilles, which causes Vader to say, you know, a family name foul with rebel ties. Okay, but wasn't Antilles supposed to be something like Smith or Jones in the Star Wars universe? That's why you'd have Ramus yeah. Antilles, and you'd have Bale Antilles, and you'd have uh, Wedge Antilles, but they're not actually all related to each other. So isn't that like me saying Smith? 
I hate all Smiths because of this one Smith. It doesn't make sense. Um, again, assuming that Wood had the slightest idea what else had been done with that name in the continuity. Uh, except uh, instead of just saying, oh, wait, I saw a a episode four and they said it was Captain Antilles. So, yeah, Antilles has to be a rebel name. That's the ticket. Uh, but the, she, the key here is that she doesn't know the name of the other prisoner. So this little bit here with Bira winds up essentially being the uh-oh, at what point will Vader learn who it is that is the other prisoner? Uh, because Luke's identity at this point is unknown. Yeah, and that's one of the things like I was questioning too. I mean, you know, Luke's name is known, and yet he's not an Imperial database. I mean, how convenient is that for the plot? Woo! Yeah. And and the Antilles thing, it did make me kind of stop and wonder. You know, now that we've got a reboot, you know, maybe maybe that no longer is the case. Maybe we'll find out that Captain Antilles was also a family member, and that Leia was being taken on her uncle's ship or something, and that Wedge is, you know, the the nephew of that captain or something. I mean. Yeah, I mean, in that regard, everything's open. But again, that wasn't the point of this series. This series wasn't supposed to be the new continuity. So again, I I, I think my problem with most of the stuff is Brian Wood's interpretation of Star Wars from the films didn't line up with what I saw in the films. And I know that that's been an ongoing issue between you know the films and the EU as it was. But in this case, there's some very minor things that we've obviously looked at in totally different lights. And and this comic definitely points that out to me. So we pick up aboard the Devastator, and uh, Luke and Wedge are taken and dropped into a cell, apparently. Um, and Luke is... <laughs> Wedge says, you know, that Luke is the one who's the expert in breaking out of detention centers. Where's oh, Leia? Okay, I mean, he was with them on the Death Star. It really wasn't him that did a whole lot except for getting them into the detention center, uh, coming up with the idea of Chewie being the prisoner, but okay. And Luke conveniently lets us know that one of the first things that he learns when he starts trying to dabble in the Force is essentially mind tricks and such. Um, so when they were searched, he was able to cause the guards, and again, we don't see the search happen, so Wedge is representing, you got that past the guards? Because Luke, in his built into his boot, he's got his lightsaber, which is taken all to pieces. Uh, apparently, Luke has learned how to build a lightsaber, which will come in handy once he gets his hand cut off, loses this one, and is going to have to build his own, uh, going towards Return of the Jedi. But apparently, Luke has figured out how a lightsaber is supposed to be put together and taken apart. But he's got it stuck uh, inside his boot, inside like a little chamber inside his boot, and Wedge says, you know, you got that past the guards? How? And he explains about how he basically bluffed past the guards using the Force. But we never actually see that happen. So there's that moment of, what are they referring to? Another of those, ha ha catch up type of moments in the storytelling. Um, but he puts it back together very, very quickly. Apparently a lightsaber is pretty easy to piece together. It is kind of neat that the pieces that you see there are similar to what we get in some of the uh, uh, design uh, things with Star Wars and things that we get with, say, uh, The Force Unleashed, seeing uh, Galen Merrick, Starkiller, putting his together and how the pieces all line up. So that was kind of neat. Shows that the uh, artist Ryan Kelly did at least some research into uh, Star Wars stuff before uh, drawing everybody as if they're made out of mashed potatoes. And Luke essentially lights up his lightsaber and now they're ready to just cut themselves out of the room and go somehow hack into the Imperial system. 
Yeah, I'm still kind of like, you know, what is this going to get you guys? I mean, you're deep in here now, and I, I don't know. That it, 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 Luke says the whole mission was a risk, and to me, I'm like, this whole mission was a suicide mission that they should have never sent you on. Like this, like the the odds on this, where's three PO? <laughs> so as they make their way out of their cell, we have a quick just cut back to Coruscant, and I gotta say. Um, Basically, all we get on Coruscant at this point, there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's a lot of running and shooting. It's Houndstooth, it's Slave One, going after the Millennium Falcon, going after the garbage scow, and basically just the, the oh no, how are we going to get out of this type of scene? So I'm not going to go into detail on it every time that we see it in this particular issue. It's basically just that going on uh, throughout until we get to the end of the issue. Yeah, Han gets control. I mean, basically, it's just setting up the fact that they're basically going to kick the Falcon out of the back of this dump truck. So Luke and Wedge cut themselves out of the cell. They get into the hallway, uh, and just Luke, thank goodness Luke has the presence of mind to keep his arm out away from him, because when they cut the hole, they have to sort of body slam themselves, body check through the door hole that they cut to, to push the piece of steel or whatever it is out into the hallway so they can go out through the hole. And Luke winds up landing on the ground with his lightsaber activated. Thank goodness he didn't cut himself. Very much like choices of one. Thank goodness when he turned it on by accident, he didn't just cut Han in half because Luke is both inept and an expert at the same time. Uh, <laughs> well, I got the impression that they cut the latch mechanism and then they, they slammed the door open. It may be, and if so, then, you know, that's another, you know, what, why? Um, but again, they bang it open. They wind up taking out the one guard that's out there. Uh, Luke is able to take the little uh, communication device out of the helmet because apparently it's more like a Bluetooth thing than it is built into the helmet, which is nice and convenient. Uh, Wedge gives a blast to the controls that open up all the other cells so all the other prisoners aboard the Devastator can basically run amok, causing... Uh, some cover for them. While meanwhile, back on Coruscant, zoom, 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 shoot, 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 zoom, zoom, zoom again. Well, the only upside there is they, they actually talk about the uh, the Gallen fire stations or torpedo stations. I mean, that was kind of interesting. You know, they talk about how, you know, yeah, they're there for Coruscant's protection, but really the Emperor uses them against his own people. You know, eh, dissonance, blam, take them out. So that, I, I kind of like felt like that was like the one build up there. Like, okay, that's going to become part of their plot. So let's kind of move that in now. But they do, they take it in steps. I will say that this part on Coruscant, uh, it has some of the best visuals that we get here. Uh, they, they have some odd perspectives of where to look from. But Ryan Kelly does a really good job when it comes to showing the Star Wars ships in action. The characters, yeah, they look a little odd. But from a ship standpoint and just showing, you know, the Houndstooth chasing the Millennium Falcon uh, mm. over Coruscant, that actually looked really cool. So uh, kudos yeah. to them for that. And showing Bosk inside the, the, the cockpit of the Houndstooth with some of his trophies hanging up behind him. Also a really mm. cool image. Well, and Boba Fett's probably the only character in this entire run that they nail. I mean, even Vader kind mm -hmm. of morphs a lot, but Fett seems to be pretty down. The artist obviously likes Fett a lot, and I, I appreciate that, because I do too. That brings us to the Alderaan system. Yes, as Leia is looking for a new home, uh, and bear in mind that somewhere in her travels, we're going to find by the end of this arc that she has to find Arachar and start making a deal there. 
So maybe she's already done it, which means even more time has passed, or maybe she's going to do it on her way back to the fleet after this encounter. But suffice to say, because she was just stopping to check for like to get more water or something, according to Rebel Girl. I still cannot believe that's the name. Um, <laughs> and she shows up here. She's in the ruins of Alderaan, hence the name of the Ark, um, basically revisiting you know, something that we got with Young Jedi Knights, the idea of returning to the graveyard of Alderaan and so forth. And she basically has like a little message buoy type thing that she sends out. She says a little, almost a benediction, you know, for the collective memory of those we lost and we who continue with them in our hearts. But she's not alone. Uh, her R2 unit, T4, points out, you know, uh-oh, incoming, a Venator-class Star Destroyer, uh, which is identified, at least in this issue, as the audacity, and though the person aboard claims to be basically an old man along with his thoughts, another old Alderanian, um, it's a beat-up old ship that he barely keeps moving, he's just here to sort of bear witness and to, uh, to pay his respects and whatnot, and he invites Leia aboard, because Leia is basically identifying herself as an Alderanian as well, and rather than getting the heck out of there, or thinking, it's a trap, perhaps, Leia just heads on in. And thankfully, it's not a matter of, you know, Leia just heads in and she won't have any regrets about this. It'll wind up playing out like that later. Um, but it's also not that everyone thinks this is a good idea. T4 is back in the back going nuts. Like, yeah. what, what, what are you doing? And she just tells the droid to hush. You know, oh, hush, T4. No one knows we're here. Right. And that's a safe statement ever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that means that the person you're going to meet probably doesn't know who you are or hopefully doesn't know who you are unless he recognizes you on sight but nobody knows to come get you if you get captured and this is bad okay ladies let's take a moment here okay you're in a dark alley of a building that's been torn down and you see an rv sitting in the midst of the rubble and a guy in there is waving you on board but you're all alone how on earth is this a safe situation (laughs) Yeah, that one that one set honest me. Another one of these pacing issues that I have, and I think that's probably my point or my issue that I have here is that the pacing of the way things are coming out doesn't always line up or it doesn't feel right. The, the, the pacing is just all off. And when Leia sends out the memory beacon, right? You know, she's like, it's a survivor thing and pushes it. And then the next panel, you see, see, you see T4, he launches the beacon. And I think that needs to be swapped with the other one because then it shows her recording it. Or, or repeating what she's just recorded, which to me seems pointless. It's like if you just swapped those panels, you could have pretended that that was her actually recording it after she pushed the button, you know, and then had it actually shot out. Or are we supposed to assume that she launches it out and she's able to record it and it then sends it over to the floating beak? I, I don't know. There's a lot of things like this that have me stopping and scratching my head. Obviously, this isn't, you know, my cup of tea, but. I don't know. When it comes to the art of the, the ships, the space, the battles, and that kind of stuff, I'm loving it. The characters, there are moments where the characters look really cool, but they very rarely even look like themselves, just in the most loosest of terms. And if you're okay with that, then you should have been okay with Dennis Quaid playing Han Solo in Episode 7. Just saying. But it's one of those things. Yeah, it's a, it's the medium, and, and you got to forgive that kind of stuff, but it is just really bad the way it morphs all the time and the way that the plot just kind of feels so off when you're going through it. And then once you jump from issue to issue and names of ships are changing and all sorts of stuff. And then as we get later into it, it's just like all of a sudden plot reveals are like, Oh, and since I couldn't say anything, this is here. Uh, okay. 
We do get kind of a cool cliffhanger here, although honestly, if, if it was characters other than film characters so that we would actually wonder if they survive, it would have made an awesome cliffhanger. Now it's just kind of a cool visual, but an eh. Uh, remember, uh, Chewie is aboard the Millennium Falcon, and he is all kind of off being chased by the Houndstooth. So the garbage scow, or the garbage hauler, is in flames, and Han and Perla are still on it. So they go to the Golan defense platform. They basically crash into it, shoot their way through their own uh, viewport to get out onto it, because apparently it must have shields or something to keep uh, enough atmosphere in there that they're okay, although the wind is still blowing. Um, it just makes for some cool visuals. And once they get out, they are on the, just the, the deck of the platform, so to speak. And sure enough, here comes Slave 1, and they and it's... Uh, Han and Ramona Flowers from Scott Pilgrim, I mean uh, Han and Perla, looking up above them, and there's Slave One just looming over them with its tail guns pointed straight at them. In fact, not just pointed straight at them, but it's angled exactly right so that it's like one of them's pointing at Han, one of them's pointing at Perla. Not by changing the way that they're pointed and, and directed by any means, but just because of how close Han and Perla are sitting there. Uh, Han said, you know, it's a calculated risk, Perla. Sometimes it pays off. Sometimes, not so much. Yes, that is what happens when you when you decide to run up against continuity and do things your own way. It's, it's a calculated risk, and sometimes it pays off. Sometimes, Mr. Wood, not so much, as we end issue eight. Yeah, again, the Han Solo stuff, I didn't have a problem with the story. I just, the pacing, you know, it, it felt like, it needed to be its own contained story. Maybe save that and and done like a one or two issues, you know, between these arcs or something, and kind of fill it in with that. And then, boom, Han shows back up. I I don't know. I I just really found it off. I mean, you could have even left Han's leaving and his arriving in this arc as it is, but then take everything in it and be like, you know, have it end with Han going, well, that's that's a tale for another story, you know, kind of thing. And then like the next issue, like one or two issues. And he sits down and kind of explaining, you know, everything that happened and catching you back up. But they could have done it like that and that would have worked just as well. Heck, I, I probably would have enjoyed it better because I, I feel like, you know, you're bouncing back and forth so much that you almost forget what the story's about. It's almost like they're trying to, to do a TV show in this little run. Thinking about the idea of taking that out as a separate story, imagine if they had done that in the vein of that silent G.I. Joe issue back in the day. Because most of it's <laughs> just a big extended chase sequence. You could have done that as this cool experiment in silent Star Wars storytelling or something, but yeah, not so much. Um, well, it makes more sense for the the female's character and the delivery at the end for her to have the words, but yeah, you could probably almost get away with that. That brings us to issue number nine, uh, the third part of the six in the story. Uh, Leia lands herself aboard the Audacity, which at this point is still called the Audacity, uh, and aboard... She meets an interesting man. She doesn't quite know who this is initially. Um, he refers to her as Bria. That's the name that she's given the alias, which, of course, is her adopted mother's name, but the Queen of Alderaan. So, you know, he's not going to necessarily immediately say, oh, I know who you are. He's going to be like, oh, oh that's, that's a very common name. Lots of girls were named in her honor. Sure. Um, but they basically hang out in his quarters, study, whatever. It's this massive library where he's managed to get his hands on a bunch of artifacts that were that survived Alderaan. Some from the wreckage, but mostly just 
you know, black market traders and things like that, you know, getting whatever he could and basically making sort of a shrine to Alderaan in his own study. And they sit, they have tea all civilized and discuss, you know, their memories of Alderaan and all. And then he steps away um, because he has a packet of tea biscuits from Cobalta in the pantry. Okay. Um, but as he walks away, Leia, I don't, let's just say she's guided by the force. Otherwise, yeah. it's yet another ridiculous coincidence. Okay. I had to do the same thing. I'm like, this has to be her using the force. Leia, guided by something in this entire room with this enormous amount of books and so forth, winds up pulling one book off the shelf and opening it, and it clunks open with basically a metal shaped like the Death Star and pictures of the Death Star and of this guy that she's just met in an Imperial uniform. And in seeing a picture of him with Tarkin, she apparently realizes um, who he might be and has his name run through the database. You know, uh, run the name Tag Rogarin through the Alliance databases. She apparently has recognized him as able to put a face to the name and such um, and finds out that he's a war criminal and as he returns, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you everything you want to know. And it turns out that, yes, Brian Wood is now tinkering also with the background of the Death Star, which we thought would probably end, you know, or at least go just to smoothing out the kinks once we found out the Death Star apparently has to do with the Geonosians back in Episode 2. But nope. Nope, nope. Tag Rogarin was, as he puts it, the chief weapon system engineer during the construction of the Death Star who conceived of, designed, and built the Super Laser Array. Um, which is a shock, and yes, that's him. So Leia holds him at gunpoint as a war criminal, uh, and he basically just is like, yeah, you know, I built it, I didn't pull the trigger, but I suppose it doesn't make much difference now, so, you know, just... Get it over with. You know, see to it that this ship is preserved, that everything I've gathered of Alderaan's memory is preserved, but go ahead and kill me. And oh, by the way, you know, you aren't just named after Bria. I recognize your, her daughter, Leia Organa. Because he's a freaking Alderanian and she somehow thought that she was going to pass as someone else when surely her face <laughs> is one of the most recognized among Alderanians uh, of this time period. Um, it, I like the idea that she winds up running into a former Imperial officer who is from Alderaan, um, who is hurt by what happened to it, and that she feels conflicted about this, whether or not his own guilt is punishment enough, or if she needs to take him in, and that sort of thing. Um, I like that clash in the conversations that they have. The fact that they had to shoehorn this guy in, though, and say he's not just any Imperial, not just a high-ranking Imperial, but he helped design yet another piece of the Death Star... Which kind of sit, makes me sit back and say, wait a second. He conceived of, not just designed, but conceived of the super laser. So either he was there at the very beginning or what? They were originally planning a Death Star that didn't have a super laser? How does that work? We now well, present is... the scare you to death star. <laughs> well, this is obviously a Mary Sue, right? I mean, that, that's what's going on here. Like, hey, we'll just not even make this character. We'll one-up Bevel Lemlisk. <laughs> Come on, let's do it. I don't know. That that was one of those things that threw me off. But another one, though, one of those inconsistencies, he goes, uh, go ahead, get it over with just one thing from a fellow Alderanian. See to it this ship is preserved and everything in it. I leave it to you. It's all yours now. Now, 
if he wants it preserved, then why in the next issue is he going to talk about, he just leave me here so I can be destroyed by everything? It's like, wait, do you want to preserve this stuff? Or do you just want to sit here and sulk until it all gets destroyed with you? Which one is it? I don't even know. I And again, that makes me, I constantly, I'm like, Brian Woods couldn't possibly be writing this alone. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm the bipolar Star Wars fan. Does this make Woods the bipolar writer? Is he having a conflict with another writer in his head because there are definitely two different writers doing stuff here there are two different stories being told and they are conflicting with each other then of course sends us back to coruscant for a little more chasing zoom 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 and then back to the devastator uh where luke and wedge managed to basically make their way through the hallways uh wedge explains that they got the schematics from the kuat drive yards thanks to a bothan spy uh, that Vader didn't make any personal modifications to the stock systems on the Devastator, therefore the schematics should be correct. And uh, then they're ambushed by a bunch of stormtroopers. And as Luke is using his lightsaber to deflect blaster bolts and that sort of thing, which is another of those you know, things that the, the Legends continuity overall is always back and forth with. Can he do this? Can he not? How skilled is he at any given point between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back? Uh, but Luke's deflecting blaster bolts and such. Uh, ben is speaking to him through the Force. A Jedi allows the Force to flow through him, Luke. You know, let it guide your actions. And Luke is deflecting him, basically going off of, of Obi-Wan's advice and, and his presence in the Force. Kind of more like, you know, just he was doing... Presumably, this is tied back into the idea of him blocking the blast from the remote. It's not him blocking them in combat as a separate skill, per se. But, you know, as long as, as Obi-Wan is with him and the Force is with him and he remembers what was said on the Millennium Falcon, he can block the blast just like he did uh, with those few blasts that he got back on the Falcon in A New Hope. It, at least that seems to be the direction that they're going with this. Um, which again, throws us to Coruscant, where, uh, for whatever reason, Boba Fett apparently decides, um, and Boba Fett is one of these characters that's either seen as honorable at, or by the book. He's either going to get the job done no matter what, or he has a sense of right and wrong uh, and and wanting things to be sporting. Because he's got Han and Perla dead to rights, and he zips the ship away a little bit and takes off in his jetpack to go down and deal with things face-to-face -face personally. It makes for kind of a cool little moment of confrontation, but it certainly diffuses that uh, cliffhanger at the end of the last issue in kind of a way that goes, oh, so that was not really a big threat anyway. Uh, but the real threat doesn't even come from Fett. The real threat comes from Perla, who starts blasting the innards of the platform and apparently finds exactly the right spot to blast to start to cause the platform itself um, to tilt, to basically start to, like, not really crash, but tilt. The tilting actually manages to throw Perla and Han off, and thankfully Chewbacca is able to pull up underneath them, uh, and they wind up landing on top of the Falcon, but so does Boba. Bump, bump, bump. What's going to happen now? Well, we won't know for them until we get to the next issue. Yeah, getting back to those things that drive me nuts. I mean, here is Ben talking. A Jedi allows the Force to flow through him, Luke. I can feel it, Ben. Good. Let it guide your actions. Although, by the time we get to the end of this, Luke's going to be like, and Ben doesn't talk to me no more. Like, okay, did you just forget about all that in the heat of the battle when he came and saved your bacon? All right. It's like, and then it's, when... isn't it like, isn't it like teenagers in a relationship? She didn't say hi to me at lunch <laughs> this morning, so now I think she hates me. Yeah, she never talks to me. Never. She said hi to me in third period, but she never talks to me. 
Well, and then Wedge, this is one of those moments where Wedge goes from being a guy with experience to having none. All of a sudden, he's just sitting there. Wedge, I'll hold them off at the past junction. Wedge, right, right. And then he does his thing, and then Wedge is sitting there pushing buttons. You're a long way from the family fueling depot, Wedge Antilles. What? Like, that just, suddenly he's Luke? Like, this, I, I don't know. That was bothersome to me, because it's like, okay, you're going to make Leia the leader of this stealth squadron, and she's going to defer to Wedge, because Wedge has, you know, some skills, and yet, now we're at this moment where all this is going down, and you neuter Wedge. Okay. I, I mean, again, it's like, I'm not exactly sure what story Brian Woods is trying to tell. I, I mean, I, I, I kind of think he's just legitimately trying to do a TV show. He's doing his own Rebels, and this is it. And it's, how can I get all of what I've got in my head onto the screen? You know, I've only got so many pages. Well, we'll just put a lot of stuff in here. I mean, it's kind of like they took one of those little plot point uh, storyboards, and, and you're just getting storyboard images that have been, you know, well, let's just take that storyboard image and, and make it look nice, and we'll just slap that right in the comic and go with it. And, and we can add a little bit of dialogue that talk about another scene that didn't happen, and we can just move past that. There's a lot of move past a lot of stuff, and sometimes there are the critical little details, for me anyway. I mean, I'm sure that other people are out there enjoying this and, and have no issue with this. I get that, that me and Nathan are probably going to be a little more critical because of our extensive Legends and EU knowledge from before and the fact that Brian Woods is just -la 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 -la, skipping through and just knocking boulders over left and right like he's going through the Goblin Desert or something. I don't know, but it's just, I don't know. For me, it, it, it's a hard swallow at times. Coming soon to HBO. Brian Woods, Game of Groans. Um, although I will say, that I, now, I understand the idea of having Wedge be the one that goes off, though. Luke has a lightsaber. He's more likely to be able to do the more defensive things. Uh, and thankfully, it winds up not being Luke who came up with the idea and thought about slicing the computer that's going to actually have to do the slicing. Instead, it's Wedge. So Wedge goes to the computer to start doing the slicing, you know, you're a long way from the family fueling depot, Wedge Antilles, he says to himself, um, which, one, makes you sit back and wonder, so where did he get the training to do this slicing? But yeah, he's been with the Rebellion long enough that maybe he does have the ability to do the slicing, and maybe back on Tatooine, this is what Luke was thinking of. He wasn't thinking of him slicing, he was thinking of Wedge and him just going along with Wedge. But Wedge apparently has the skills to get into the database and get whatever it is that's needed. Because apparently somewhere in the Imperial database, there'll be a file that just says, this is who the mole is. Um, as opposed to having that encrypted or something buried somewhere or something maybe not even on the computer system. Um, but that line there, you're a long way from the family fueling depot, Wedge Antilles. That is something that comes from the Legends continuity. Which again has me sit back going, Mr. Wood. Do you know the continuity or do you not? Did you research or did you not? Because it looks like at times you're doing the research and there's names of planets and stuff that pop up that you can only know the QLRN system. Uh, Tyon. Those things pop up in the story. Surely you must have read or done some research into the expanded universe before you wrote this because those references are there. But if that's the case, then why are you making a mess of these other things? Is it that you didn't research enough? You only researched certain things, or you didn't give a flying fire spray. You know, seriously, <laughs> what exactly is it that um, that leads to this level of, of contradictions, of, of just kind of incidental contradictions that just didn't need to be there, if it does seem as though at least sometimes he's doing the research? I like the line there from Wedge. It shows a tip of the hat back to his background and back to the rest of the Legends continuity, but how is that 
there, and yet this other stuff is such a, a, a mangled mess of it. We end the mm-hmm. issue with what amounts to sort of another cliffhanger here. Uh, Vader gets a message, or gets a, a communication call from Bira. And Bira explains that uh, uh, the second one, the second of the the rebels, right, but they already identified Antilles, uh, or Jones, or Smith, the second one has been ID'd, and she ran it through some obscure provincial databases and turned up a moisture farming permit from Tatooine. And she doesn't have to tell Vader that it's Skywalker. Vader realizes, Skywalker, okay? And uh, then he basically tells her that uh, Skywalker is to be detained at all costs, and Wedge, you know, just kill him, but keep Skywalker at all costs. Um, she will be greatly rewarded. The Empire will be in her debt if she is able to carry out this part of the mission. Um, so again, Vader already knows who Luke is, apparently, as of what we saw with the na- use of the name Skywalker and such in the previous arc and in this arc, uh, and the fact that this is all supposed to be right after Vader's quest and all that. But uh, it takes a while for that identification to happen. It's too bad they didn't just send a picture and say, say, Lord Vader, we don't know who the Rebels are. But here's a picture. Do you know who they are? God, that would have made so much sense. because Wouldn't it? I'm, I'm constantly like, okay, how did you ID him? You know, you ran him through the Imperial database and came up with nothing. I mean, what could possibly be better than the Imperial database? How did you ID him? How did you get this name? I mean, did, did you overhear Wedge say Luke or something? I mean, th- that to me, I'm constantly like, how did you figure it out? But yet the Imperial database with all its information and stuff and, and Vader's looking for this kid and that name's, th- I mean, that, that's a big question I have. It's kind of like, how come the Jedi didn't find out that Tyrannus was Sifo-Dyas? Where's my story that tells me that? Well, I can almost give this to him because you could sit back and say, wait a second, with all the resources of the Empire, shouldn't they have known after what happened on the Death Star? Shouldn't they have had DNA, fingerprints, video footage? Somehow shouldn't they have a way to recognize Luke? But you could make the argument that things were going so quickly in the lead-up to the Battle of Yavin and the chaos going up to it, which actually they reference later in the issues here, that there was just a lot of chaos in the Empire leading up to the Battle of Yavin, which seems odd, because I don't think we ever really got a sense that there was chaos leading up to the Battle of Yavin. Um, but that's what Brian Wood needs it to be in order to explain away his story, so all of a sudden it is. Um, but you would think that maybe with all the chaos going on, they never got a chance to really go through and try to identify those rebels, because they thought they were tracking them anyway, and then the evidence gets blown up with the first Death Star, that maybe... There was no way to necessarily pick him out. And remember, Luke's been on the moisture farm all his life. He hasn't submitted his application to the Academy. Maybe they just don't have anything on file for him. It's unlikely, but it's possible. And certainly they can't keep everybody's records on the main database or right easily at reach. Certainly it it makes sense for him to be within an obscure database of information because he just wasn't a big deal until he blew up the Death Star, and now they're scrambling to try to figure out identification. So that I can buy. Um, it's just it's one of those things where it would have made sense, you know, hey, show him a picture. You know, if Vader had seen it, then he would possibly be able to recognize because he sees Luke walking away or sees Luke with his own, no, and then running aboard, you know, the Death Star and everything. So yeah, I mean, or, that running, running aboard I... the Falcon aboard the Death Star. Yeah, that way of IDing him, that, that legitimately makes sense. I mean, with her saying we've ID'd him, I'm like, but... But how did you ID him? What process could you have possibly gone through that the other guys didn't? <laughs> Whereas showing it to Vader, that one, that's ding, 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 ding. Okay, yeah. I like his lines, though. 
it's a, it, I'm assuming this is meant to convey a level of contradiction that's on purpose to give some depth to Vader. I hope. Uh, Vader's looking out at the Death Star and says, Fools, to put our faith in yet another one of these battle stations. Uh, yet another being because it's the second one, presumably not because there was the one at Maw installation and there was you know, all these other things that we did to try to figure out if it would work, like the Tarkin being built and so forth. Um, it says, what the Emperor doesn't realize is the ultimate power in the universe lies elsewhere. So it's the Emperor putting his trust in Death Stars, not uh, Vader, which makes sense with the whole concept of the Tarkin Doctrine being Tarkin convincing Palpatine of that. But I like the line, he says, fools, to put our faith in yet another one of these battle stations. It's sort of that interesting contradiction where Vader is scoffing at Palpatine's ideas, scoffing at this idea, and yet he recognizes he is part of that structure, that it makes him sort of the less foolish of the fools because he's part of this organization that's putting their foolish hopes into these, even though he recognizes that there's something more powerful than it in the universe. I don't know if he yeah. meant to convey that as part of that meaning, but it certainly comes across there and gives you a sense of Vader again. He's sort of conflicted. It's the Sith thing, you know, that he is Palpatine's servant, but at the same time, he aspires to be greater. Well, and it's also part of that lure of Anakin, you know, when he was telling Padme, you know, we'll, we'll displace him, you know. And and I, I've always felt that there was that part of him still that wants that revenge on Palpatine for everything that's happened. And you get the feeling that he is committed to the Empire. And the way that this plays out, you definitely get that sense that, you know, he feels that his views on things are better than Emperor Palpatine's. Emperor Palpatine's has been kind of persuaded by these lesser beings, in a sense, and, and his, his vision's kind of been strayed you know invaders kind of more refined and and you know has a better feel of what we should be doing because kind of he went into this devil's deal thinking you know that the things are wrong we need to to make things better and this empire is that solution and yet now he's watching that empire flounder it's almost like he's ready to seize that power and may i say that this is one place in which while the artwork still fails to a degree because vader's uh, the, the, the eye pieces of Vader's mask apparently are shaped differently from the inside than they are on the outside unless they move and contort with expressions like C-3PO and R2-D2 in droids. How cool is it that we get an image of Vader looking out of the Death Star through the eyes of his mask? Yeah, that's get a that cool red one. tint. Although it does I, be, I like that a lot. It makes me sit back, though. It strikes me, uh, and this is something that, that Lucas introduced, of course, with Episode 3. You see the mask coming on and everything. Um, but it kind of makes you wonder with the whole red tint there, uh, when Vader was battling Obi-Wan, should he have said something like, I see you now have a red lightsaber. What happened to your blue one? What do you mean? It's red. No, it's not. Everything's red. You know, something where you know, the fact <laughs> that Vader can't apparently see in color, like, was it dogs or cats, I guess it is? Um, yeah. Makes for an interesting, uh, I mean, and he's literally living his life uh, throughout decades, basically seeing everything through this red hue. I guess you could say it gives him rose-colored glasses when thinking about the Empire, <laughs> or you could say that he's always, as a Sith, seeing red. Uh, I could just see, you know, you got like a bomb squad. Don't send in Lord Vader, he's colorblind! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the green wire, the red wire, which wire is it? Is it the gray um, one or the light gray one, or is it the darker gray one? <laughs> it's the red one. Um, we leave off, though, with Perla. 
Perla, who has been all but forgotten in this issue, um, still stuck in her very coolly blue-painted X-Wing underneath the Star Destroyer Devastator, and she's awakened by her astromech, R5, who she berates for letting life support get as low as it did. Uh, uh, learns that, it's, that they have sufficient life support to make it back to the fleet, but no more, and she refuses to leave Luke. Instead, she decides that they, instead of taking the Securitas route with all the little short jumps to hide their location and everything um, back to the fleet, which would take up all that fuel, uh, instead, that she's basically going to take a much more direct route, which uses less fuel, which will allow uh, R5 to basically uh, keep life support going a little bit longer. Essentially, that she's going to be able to stick around, hang around, and as such... Uh, be there for Luke, even if it means that she basically is going to take a route back to the fleet that may wind up giving away the fleet's uh, position, uh, which is a an odd choice. I will say, I'm not sure... Okay, Why, in the process of doing this, okay, she says, what is it? You let life support get that low? First off, you know, let life support get that low? Did she not give the droid an order? I mean, this is a droid, after all. It's probably waking her up at a predetermined either time or predetermined level of life support. Um... And she said, you know, keep trying, R5. I'm not leaving them, you know, about getting Luke and Wedge in the comm. Keep trying. And then talks about how she's going to go back um, later, blah, 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 blah. Okay? What part of keep trying to raise them on the comm requires R5 to inexplicably come out of his droid socket and start zipping around the top of the X-Wing? Yeah, I too was, like, questioning that. Like, wait, why is he getting out? Like, is he supposed to repair something on the outside? What? It's R5 going, you know what? Screw it. I'm done. I'm done. And he's just walking away from the whole mess. Only he doesn't really have anywhere to go. It's it's odd. It, it seems like there should be something else going on to cause the droid to pop out of his socket and go rolling around other than, hey, keep trying to reach them on the comms. Wait, why are you leaving? You're no longer connected to the ship. Can you still use the comms? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that brings up one thing that I, I forgot to mention in one of the earlier issues. Leia's droid is an R2-T4 unit, and she just calls it T4. And I like the fact that they, they still made it an R2 unit. Uh, you know, that was always something from the legend standpoint that drove me nuts, you know, when all of a sudden Mace had an R8 droid, and they were like, oh, yeah, we have R8 series droids. The hell you do? No, you don't, sir. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things like, you have established stuff that does not come out until much later. You can have an R8 droid that's an R2-R8 or an R4-R8, but you are not going that high with an R8 unit. Uh-uh, wasn't me. Uh-uh. But, of course, you know, it being a Legends thing, they can do whatever they want with that. But I like, or I should say a canon thing, they could do anything they want with that. But I like how it fits, you know, within the Legends thing and the way they, they did that. And she went with T4 versus R2. I That's something that, that was always near dear to me. Again, getting that art style though, this last panel, which which I'm sure you're about to mention, I see, oh, that's the kind of art about this that I find glorious. This style, when you have no characters or anything like that, and it's just ships in space and stuff, it, it's the stuff that could be posters, you know, it's stuff you could have as a desktop and things like that. It's really beautifully done. The lines are crisp, they're great, it's iconic. Everything about it that I love. And, and that's the, the, the glorified upside of this series is the way they do all that kind of stuff. But for me, that's not enough to make me love the series. You know, it's, it's all right, but I'm not really loving it. And that brings us to the end of the third out of six issues. And we're probably a little over an hour at this point, if not quite a bit longer, depending on all the flubs of mine that you got to cut out and all the, the swearing. 
that has to be bleeped. Um, so maybe we should cut it here. What do you think? Should we cut it here and come back to the next three episodes or the next three uh, issues next time or what? That sounds like a plan. And in truth, it was his plan, but I had to do the transition. You see how that works here? Subtle, yo. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions or comments, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles you can explore in Star Wars, Legends, Universe, or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that is one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the last two issues of Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2 that are still to come will somehow correct the continuity mess. Maybe they'll go back in time and change things or something. What are the odds it was all a dream? Or what are the odds that Randy Stradley is actually Brian Wood? Well, he is enough other people. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 131 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. Wait, this is 132, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, my... Okay, good. I'm glad I caught that. Yeah, my show notes, they don't always update, and when we did that feedback one, I put them both together, but it only showed me the title of, uh, 130. It didn't show 132, so I gotta go and double Welcome to the latest episode. Oh. Yeah, welcome to today, not tomorrow. Or whatever. <laughs>
back into the left, a clown. Okay. I should be ready, sir, I believe. Maybe. Okay, take two. This week, we episode... Wait, what? I'm so f***ing tired. <laughs>